0: I'd like us to read Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, as we get started this morning. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha Alpha. And the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And we're going to stop right there this morning. Let's pray together as we begin this time. Father, we thank you for your grace that is shown to us in worship. God, it's no small thing that we're able to gather together as an act of faith to remind us of who you are and how you're at work in our lives. God, to celebrate baptism the lord's supper to celebrate through music to come together around your word not wanting to listen to a speech or someone's opinion but god wanting to be able to look into your word and see the goodness of jesus christ and god would you remind us of that this morning would you would you gather us together so that as we leave this place we will be able to continue to follow after christ continue to live for him for your glory and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So two weeks ago, as we started out this study of Revelation chapter one, we explained Revelation using rap music. Last week, as we talked about what it was to live in such a way that we're not just living for now, but we realize there's more than what's going on around us, we used Prince Psalm 1999 And let me just go on record of saying a lot of you own that album, all right? So last week, we raised hands when it came time for who owned Prince's 1998 nine album. Not judging, but there was a lot of people who owned that album. So uh, this week, how do we follow up rap music and Prince? We follow it up with none other than Bob Dylan. No one has to raise their hand if they've owned any Bob Dylan music over the years. But listen to these lyrics from Bob Dylan. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. Not if you're Baptist, but otherwise. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be a heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. It might be the devil, or it may be the Lord but you're going to have to serve somebody. Those lyrics are actually a pretty good introduction to thinking about this subject that we're going to look at this morning in verses 5 and 6. Revelation is an unveiling of God's glory, of the victory we have through Christ. And so we are able to see him, and we are able to worship him. Here's the connection. Those who worship him, those who are able to see the revelation of God, the revelation of Jesus Christ, and worship him, those same people will serve him. We serve what we worship. And that's not just a religious, spiritual church thing. That's true for every person on the planet. Who or what we worship is who or what we will serve. And so as we understand what it is to worship God, to live up toward him, we will find that transform in the ways that we live our life. And that's what we want to happen. That's what we want to characterize our lives as Christians. That's what we want to characterize a church, is that it's not a a one-time-a-week, one-hour-a-week sort of worship, but it's the kind of worship such that it impacts 24-7 our lives. Everything that we do is an outflow of worshiping God. And what we find at the beginning of Revelation is that if we know what it is to worship God, then we will also know what it is to follow Jesus, to follow after him, which is what we find portrayed in the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, that we will know God, we will worship him, and then we will follow after him, finding our lives transformed. And so what I want to give you this morning from these verses are three titles for Jesus that we find in verse 5, three actions or three roles that Jesus carried out and why it matters. So we're going to look at who Jesus is, then we're going to look at what Jesus does, and then we're going to look at why it matters. And hopefully that will make sense as we go through these verses and you can see that pattern laid out there on your notes. Who Jesus is, what Jesus does, and why it matters. Let's look at verse 5 because this is where we start to get the titles for Jesus. If you like to underline or circle things, this will be a good morning for you. There's a lot of little things you can underline and look at. Verse 5. It says, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So who is Jesus? The first thing we find here is that he is the faithful witness. It's the first title that's given to Jesus here. Witness is obviously someone that speaks to something they've seen or experienced or they believe they're giving testimony to it so that we're able to know that. We're able to trust what that person says. And when it says that Jesus is a faithful witness, Every time in the book of Revelation that this phrase is used, faithful there just means true. It means that he is a faithful witness in that we can trust him. We can look to Jesus and we can know who God is, what God is like, how God works in the world. So we know that he is a faithful witness. We find this actually portrayed in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 14 verse 25, it says a truthful witness saves lives But one who breathes out lies is deceitful. So we know about Jesus that he is a faithful witness, that he speaks what is true, that he portrays to us what is true about God, and because of that, he's able to give life. Now on your notes, on the back of your bulletin, you'll see that under each of these points I've given you several different Bible verses, several different references. We're going to look at a lot of Scripture this morning, and most of that's going to be up on the screen behind me. But I want you to be able to go back and and trace some of this down. If you want to track down some of these passages this morning or this afternoon, I want you to have access to that. But Proverbs chapter 14 is very clear that when we talk about a faithful witness, it's not just that you tell the truth, but it's that by telling the truth, you're able to give life. You're able to sustain the life that you give. How is this shown in the life of Jesus John chapter 5, John chapter 5 verse 36, Jesus is talking and he says, The testimony, or the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, these are the works that I am doing. And they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. What Jesus is telling the people is that when you look at my life, you look at the works that I do, the things that I say, they are meant to give a witness. They are meant to bear testimony to the fact that I am from the Father. You can look at me and you can see God. You can know what he's like and what he's up to. 1 Timothy chapter 6, you get kind of a surprising reference. You wouldn't expect to get this in 1 Timothy. But in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul is telling them, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, in the presence of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So Paul is referencing here something true about Jesus that relates back to the testimony that he made before Pilate. Here's an interesting thing about the word testimony. The word testimony in the New Testament is connected to the word that we get the word martyr. Now, it didn't mean martyr in its original context, but as it developed through the years, to give testimony to something, to witness to something, became connected to the idea of being a martyr, that you would give your life for it. And this is why we find this connection developing that Jesus' testimony that he gave before Pilate. What was his testimony? His testimony is what we actually find in John chapter 18. We're going to refer back to John chapter 18 at a later point in the sermon. But in John chapter 18, we find the testimony that he gave before Pilate. Here's what it is John chapter 18, verse 37. Pilate said to him, So, you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In other words, you don't know the type of king that I really am, but you you say that, so I'll acknowledge that. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Notice the relationship back to Proverbs 14 at this point. That Jesus is giving a true witness that will ultimately give life. I bear witness to the truth. And then everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus is basing his life, his words, on the fact that he is a faithful and true witness. If you want to know what God is like, you can look to Jesus. Now why is this important right now? We live in a world that if you were to go up to most people, not everybody, but if you were to go up to most people and ask them, do you believe in God, a good number of people are going to acknowledge that. They're going to say, yeah, I believe in God. But if you press and you say, tell me about this God that you believe in, that's where you go all over the radar at that point, all over the spectrum. There are all kinds of ideas about who or what God is really like. The reason it matters that Jesus is the faithful and true witness is because he is showing us, telling us who God is, what God is like, how God is at work in the world. Jesus is the revelation of God. We are able to know this unveiling who is God. God has revealed himself to us through his word and through the person of Jesus Christ. And so he's the faithful witness, which means that those who follow after him should also be a faithful witness. Revelation chapter 2, if your Bible's still open to Revelation 1, it'll be easier to find. Or if you're in your phone, you can scroll down just a little bit. Revelation chapter 2, verse 13. These are some of the letters that John was writing to these churches. This is the letter to the church at Pergamum. Chapter 2, verse 13, it says, You, Pergamum, hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, referring to one of the church members there, notice the phrase that's used about Antipas, my faithful witness. The exact same phrase that's used in reference to Jesus In Revelation chapter 1 verse 5, Antipas was my faithful witness. What happened to him? Who was killed among you. He was martyred. Remember we talked about how the word martyr comes from the word for testimony or witness? A faithful witness. Antipas was faithful even to giving his life so that we would be able to know what it looks like that Jesus also gave his life for us. He was killed among you. So what's the point? Why is John calling Jesus here a faithful witness? Now on your notes, for each of the titles, there's three titles that we're going to look at who Jesus is. For each of these, we're going to make a Jewish comparison, a Roman comparison, and then a comparison to Satan. So if you like to draw lines or kids, if you want to draw a line out from each of those points under who Jesus is, you can draw a line out and write one, two, three on each of those Because there's a comparison that John is doing here between a Jewish comparison, a Roman comparison, and then a comparison to Satan, the great opponent and enemy of God. What happens in the book of Revelation is you get a lot of Jewish Old Testament imagery in the book of Revelation. You also get a lot of Roman Empire imagery and language And you also get a lot of satanic language or references to Satan, to the enemy of God. And what John is able to do at the beginning of Revelation, it was each of these titles, he's able to push back against each of those groups that was opposed to the way of God at this point, who who was opposed to Jesus as the Christ, as the Savior. So for the Jews here is the idea that the ninth commandment is that you would not bear false witness, And it says here that Jesus is what? He is the faithful witness, the true witness. What John is saying is if you really believe the Ten Commandments and you believe that we should not bear false witness, Jesus is the perfect example of what it is to follow God's commandments, what it is to know His commands and to live those out. He's playing on something that would have made perfect sense to the Jewish people that we follow God's commands. And John says, if you do, Look to Jesus, because he's the perfect example of what it means to be a faithful and a true witness. For the Romans, the people looked to Rome, and what they saw with Rome was a group that made big promises, but always lied to them. They would say, we're going to come, and we're going to bring peace, and we're going to bring security, and we're the government that's going to come and rescue you, and over and over and over again, the people, the lower class people, were ultimately lied to. They were deceived. Now, I want to be very careful with this illustration because many of you serve faithfully in government roles and you're seeking to be a light in some very hard places. But we realize what it feels like to be promised something by a government power. And then that not to come to fruition, uh, to essentially be lied to. And once again, if you're involved in the government, I'm not calling you a liar, okay? Let's be very clear about that. I don't want to find anything written. The pastor said all government employees are liars. It's not what I said. What you see here, though, is a picture of these people knew what it was to be lied to, to be deceived, And John is saying, if you look to Jesus, he will be faithful and he will be true to you. What he promises, his salvation, that will actually come to pass. How about references to Satan? What is Satan called at one place in the Gospels? He's called the father of lies. The father of lies. And John is poking back at that. He's pushing back against that saying, Satan will ultimately always be the father of lies he will offer one thing and he will give another and if you don't believe that you go back and you read genesis 3 and you see what it is to be offered one thing and ultimately find another which is death and so john pushes back and he says jesus is the faithful and true witness you can trust him many of you are here and even at this stage in your life you have trouble trusting You have trouble trusting religious figures. You have trouble trusting churches. You may have trouble trusting God because of things that have happened in your life. You've experienced a lot of heartache. You've been burned. You've been lied to. You've been hurt. The message of of Revelation 1-5 is Jesus is a faithful and true witness. In a world of lies, you can trust him. He will be faithful to the end and he will always portray truthfully who God is and how God is at work in your life. And I know it's hard to get over distrusting people. It's especially hard to get over distrusting pastors or churches. So I don't want to point you to myself. I want to point you to Jesus, that he is the faithful and true witness. What's the second title? So we know Jesus is a faithful witness. Secondly, in verse 5, It says he is the firstborn of the dead. Firstborn of the dead here refers to Jesus' resurrection. The fact that he died for us, but he did not remain dead. He rose again. And, And firstborn refers to the fact that he is the first of many who will experience resurrection. Firstborn could either mean the first in a line of something, or it could just refer to a special status or privilege. And what it's referring to is because of Jesus' resurrection, we can all have hope for resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, I think is the first verse that's listed there in your notes. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Christ, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the firstfruits. Of those who have fallen asleep, so this is not the same phrase. It's not firstborn, but it's the same concept. He is the firstfruits because he's experienced resurrection. We will also know what it is to experience resurrection. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, you get the exact reference to the word firstborn. Colossians 1:18, He Christ is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Because Jesus was resurrected, because of what Christina showed us earlier in baptism, what it is to go into the water to picture death, and to come up out of the water and picture resurrection, because of that, we have hope. Okay, remember? Jewish, Roman, Satan. How does this push back against those ideas? The Jewish people in the Old Testament were called God's firstborn. You get a reference in the Old Testament to Israel as the firstborn of God. The Jewish people believed in a resurrection, but it was a general resurrection that was completely pushed into the future. But what they found with Jesus is that his resurrection broke into history. This was not a general resurrection to be pushed into the future. He was ultimately the perfect picture of what it was to be the firstborn of God, that we would never be able to face death were it not for him he defeated death he made possible resurrection for rome as the people thought about the roman empire everywhere they looked they saw death everywhere they looked they saw death there was disease there was war there was suffering everywhere they looked they saw death when they looked to jesus they saw life everywhere around you you experienced death you start to feel despair. You start to decide, maybe this is all there is to this world. Maybe we just live and we die and that's the end of it. There's nothing we can do about it. And then someone comes along and says, no, there's this guy named Jesus. And he's not just a guy, but he's God with you. And he's not just God with you, but he's the firstborn among the dead. Because of him, we are able to have hope for resurrection. And then you think about Satan that everything that he is about as the enemy of God is to bring death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Firstborn from among the dead means that not only are we able to have trust in Jesus that he tells us the truth, but we're able to have trust in him that he will give us life. And then look at the third title. So, faithful witness who is Jesus? He's a faithful witness. He's the firstborn from among the dead. And then it says he's the ruler of kings on earth. This idea of the ruler of the kings on earth means that he is above every other king. The reason a verse like Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 is, is so important is because there may come a time in your life that someone says, I heard that you're a follower of Jesus. I heard you believe in Jesus. Could you tell me who Jesus is, or what he's like. What you have in Revelation 1-5 is you can take someone to that verse and you can give them a perfect picture of who Jesus is. He came so that we would know who God is. He's a perfect picture, a perfect witness of that. He died for us and then rose again. He's the firstborn from among the dead so that we might have the hope of life. And he has ascended to the Father. He is over. All other kings. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. What you've done in three phrases in one verse is you've been able to very simply walk someone through the question, Who is Jesus? So make sure, I know it's hard to remember Bible verses, I know it's hard to be able to go back to certain places, but know that you have a gift in Revelation 1 5 that you could answer for somebody who asks you, Who is Jesus? He is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. What does this mean for the Jewish people? Remember when you think about the Old Testament and you think about the Jewish people, they were always looking for the perfect king. They even asked for a king, and they got Saul, and then they got David, and God's blessing and anointing was on David, and we find promises in the Old Testament that David's throne that his kingdom will continue forever. Psalm chapter 89 verse 27. There's this amazing connection of two phrases. Look in this verse. I will make him, God is referring to his servant, to David, but ultimately it becomes a prophecy of the Messiah. I will make him, what? The firstborn. That's the exact word that we saw. Well, it's Hebrew to Greek, but it's the same idea that we saw in Revelation 1. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Almost certainly when John is writing Revelation 1, he knows the Old Testament a lot better than we do. Psalm 89 is right there with him. He knows that the firstborn will also be the ruler of the kings of the earth. And so he's saying to the Jewish people, your perfect king is here. You have him in Jesus Christ. For the Roman Empire, they had the emperor, the one who was considered to be sovereign, the one who was considered to be all above and over all others. John is saying, you want to see the emperor You want to see the one who is truly keen? Look to Jesus. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And then when you think about Satan, remember the temptation that Jesus faced. Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. The devil took him to a very high mountain. This is Matthew 4, 8 through 9. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him what? All the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus resists that temptation because he knows that as he is faithful, as he dies and rises again, he will have all those kingdoms. He will be over all of those kingdoms. And so Satan can offer him no power that he doesn't already have with God. He's a faithful witness. He's the firstborn from among the dead. And he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. So he has those titles. That's his identity. What does he do with those? So now we move to the second part. And we'll move more quickly through this section. So we go from who he is to what he does. And if you'll notice on your notes, what he does is going to match up exactly with who he is. He always acts from his identity. In verse 5, at the end of verse 5, it says, To him... Who loves us. So, what does Jesus do as the faithful witness? He loves us. He is the one who has shown us what love is all about. What I want to do for the next couple of minutes, and it should just take two or three minutes, I want to read for you a section of passages that talk about Jesus' love that he has for us. So, you can just sit there, they're going to be on the screen behind you. Think about, though, I believe Jesus loves me. You teach your kids to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We know that to be true, but listen to these passages. Read them on the screen with me. John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love have love for one another. John 14:23 Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. John 15:10 If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us first john three sixteen the other John three sixteen that we don 't always memorize first john three sixteen by this we know love that He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Galatians chapter two, verse twenty. I have been crucified with Christ. it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians chapter five, verse two. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Ephesians chapter five, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We talk about the fact that Jesus loves us, and the Bible tells us so, but we need to be reminded of what it looks like for Jesus to live out that love, to display that love to us as the faithful and true witness. There was a, a college-age conference that happened a few months ago. It's called the Passion Conference. It usually happens every year. Sometimes they do it every other year. At the Passion Conference this year, as they were compiling the results from the counseling sessions at the end of each of the times of worship, they found out that the, that the kids who came for counseling after the Bible teaching and worship, the top two reasons they came for counseling was struggles with pornography and struggles with suicide. And then they began to realize there is almost a direct relationship between the two. And both of those come back to either not understanding love for ourselves or not understanding love for others. It was a vacuum of love that these kids were facing and they were finding, they were searching for it in pornography or suicide. Failing to value someone else or failing to value yourself. Failing to understand love for others or failing to understand love for yourself. We live in a world where people struggle to understand what it is to be loved. I know love can sound like a cheesy word, can sound like a strange word to use, but we live in a world where people struggle understanding what it is to be loved and then to know how to show love. And the greatest answer we have to that is Jesus Christ. That he has given us a perfect picture of love. And if you're here this morning and you struggle right now saying I don't know what it is to feel loved. I don't love myself. I don't love others. I don't know if God loves me. We have a picture in Jesus Christ of what it is to experience perfect love, that he loved us so much that he gave his life for us. And this comes in that second thing Jesus does. If you go back to verse five, Revelation chapter one, verse five, he loves us. How does he love us? He loves us in that he has freed us from our sins by his, lo- by his blood. It's not this uh, general sort of love. It's a very specific kind of love in the sense that we are no longer held captive to those sins. A couple of Bible verses about this. Colossians chapter one, verses 13 through 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. His greatest act of love is that he died for us, so that we could be set free from sin, so we could have new life. The cross is the revelation of God's love for us. The cross is the apocalypse. You want to see an apocalypse? You don't go watch a bad movie about the future. You look to the cross. The cross is the greatest revelation, the greatest unveiling of what it is to know God's love and to know the power of God's love and, and, and salvation at work in our lives. What is the result of experience freedom from sins? So this is the third thing Jesus does. He loves us. He frees us from sin. And then if you say, so what? What, what does that matter in my life? Verse six, and he made us a kingdom, priest. To his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Here's how God works in your life. He loves you, and you recognize that love. He frees us from our sins as we turn to him and trust in the salvation of Jesus Christ, trust in his death and resurrection. And then after we experience that salvation, he makes us a kingdom, priest, so it's not that we're saved just to hang out until we die we're saved so that we're able to live out our roles in his kingdom servants in his kingdom priests in his kingdom let me give you a couple of pictures of this uh, from from the new testament john chapter uh oh sorry i missed one colossians chapter 1 verses 13 to 14 he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us To the kingdom of his beloved son. So, what does he do when he rescues us from darkness? He transfers us to the kingdom of his son. That's what we saw in Revelation 1. John chapter 18, verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom, this is the same passage earlier that we saw when he was before Pilate making that confession. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So lest we misunderstand what it is to be a part of Jesus' kingdom, it doesn't mean that we fight physically, militarily for the kingdom. And this is where some of our books and movies about the end times go very wrong. It's not that we fight militarily for his kingdom. It's that the kingdom is found in our confession of Jesus as Lord. It's found when we serve Within his kingdom. How do we serve within his kingdom the same way Jesus served us? By loving others and giving up our lives for them. It's a, it's a kingdom of service. It's a kingdom of words, not of swords. Peter took out a sword and Jesus said, put it away. I don't need your sword. I need your confession. I need, I need you to serve as a part of my kingdom. How do we do that? We do that as priests. In your Bible, if you like to write, out to the side of Revelation chapter 1, Verse 6, you need to write Exodus chapter 19. Because what John is doing here is he's drawing directly on Exodus chapter 19, and then Peter is going to pick up on this in 1 Peter chapter 2. First, let's look at Exodus chapter 19. It says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is a promise that God had made them, that they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-12, through 12, we're going to end with these verses here. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Kingdom, priests same words used together. A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Being called out of darkness into light, that's that Colossians 1 language that we saw earlier, how we were transferred out of darkness into the kingdom of his son. And then it goes on in verse 11 of First Peter 2, and it says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so w- that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 points to that future coming of Jesus. And it says the best way you can prepare for that is you proclaim the goodness of God, and you display that through a holy life in which you seek to do good for others. So Jesus, who is he? Faithful witness, firstborn from among the dead, and the ruler of the kings. What does he do because of that? He loves us, he frees us from sin, and then he sets us free from a boring, meaningless life by making us a kingdom and priest. Why does it matter? It matters so that we might be able to be faithful witnesses just as he was, so that we might be able to love others. It matters so that we might be able to experience salvation in our life and then be able to point to that to others who don't have hope, that they would have the hope of the resurrection. And then it matters so that we would be servants, that we would be priests. Living for his glory so others would know what it is to follow after him. You got to serve somebody. Might be the devil, might be the Lord, but we will serve the one that we worship. And my desire for your life, my desire for my life, my desire for Emmaus Baptist Church is that we would worship God and that we would serve him as we follow after Jesus Christ. As we wrap up our time together this morning, we've been able to celebrate that through baptism, through singing, through the Lord's Supper. We're not gonna have a traditional invitation this morning. Our invitation this morning is gonna be a time of prayer. If you would bow your heads with me right now, I wanna give you an opportunity. I know life will get very busy in about 10 minutes from now. But I wanna give you an opportunity before we dismiss, just to have a moment of quiet reflection. To think about, who do I believe Jesus is? Who do I know Jesus to be? Do I trust him? Have I experienced salvation? Do I live as his follower, as his disciple? And if those things are true in your life, What does it matter? What does it matter that we believe those things? Do they show up in the way that we live our lives? Do we love others? Do we tell them the truth? If you look at your life and you say, you know what? I am living a lie. I don't love others. Use this as an opportunity to confess that to the Lord To ask for forgiveness that you would be able to be set free to live as a servant in his kingdom, to live as a priest. You're not making physical animal sacrifices, but the sacrifices that we offer are worship and prayer and devotion to God so that others would see his goodness. If you're here this morning, and you know that you've never experienced what you saw in baptism or what you saw in the Lord's Supper this morning, but you would like to know more about Jesus, after the service, I'm gonna stay up here at the front. I would be honored to talk with you about that. Kids, teenagers, know that what you see in the Bible sets you free from a boring, meaningless trip through life because you're able to see what life really looks like and it's found in loving others it's found in a hope that goes beyond your circumstances it's found in serving others commit yourself to that this morning Father we thank you for your goodness thank you for the hope that we have through Jesus and we celebrate that this morning we pray this in Jesus name Amen.